I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Lee Jin, co-founder and general partner at Variant, a seed stage venture capital firm investing primarily in Web3. For years, Lee has written about and invested in the passion economy. She actually coined the term in 2019. Her basic thesis was that specialized Web2 marketplaces and platforms would allow more and more people to transform their passion and expertise into legitimate businesses at internet scale. I'm not sure that thesis survived contact with the giants of Web2, just look at the rise and fall of Clubhouse, but Web3's addition of ownership to the equation is bringing new life to this thesis for both users and investors. Lee is betting that ownership, and not just income, will be the next big opportunity in the passion economy. And the best way to facilitate that is, of course, on Web3. Lee's not speaking as some armchair observer here. She's an experienced investor who spent four years on the consumer investment team at A16Z, which is where our conversation begins. Let's jump in. Lee, welcome to Validated. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I kind of wanted to start off today talking a little bit about your transition into venture and that move to A16Z, because I think one of the things that's really interesting there is, you know, many people, sure, they they work at smaller funds and they jump up to sort of the big leagues. But, you know, you joined in 2016 there. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? That's right. I joined in fall 2016. Yeah. So that was a really interesting time just in venture in general, um, when things were really changing. What was that kind of moment that, you know, you were talking to them and they said like, oh, your view on something like consumer venture is, is different from what we've been hearing. We'd love this voice to be part of the organization. This is a a really interesting story all on its own, because I think the story of how I got into venture is really, really different from probably how a lot of people get into venture. So yeah, rewinding the tape back to 2016, the backstory here was that I had been working as a product manager in Silicon Valley. I was living in Menlo Park, California. I was working as a consumer PM. I was working for a venture-backed startup called Shopkick. We were building mobile apps that rewarded users for walking into physical retail stores, engaging with different branded products. Um, So we were working with like nationwide retailers like Best Buy, Macy's, as well as CPG brands. And in the midst of all of this, while I was there, we were acquired by a South Korean telecom company named SK Telecom. And so Anyways, I was there for a couple of years post-acquisition, and then I started to think about what are my next steps. I'd sort of seen this company through every stage of its life cycle. I was ready for something next. And at this point in time, I really tried to cast a wide net in terms of my next steps. I really loved product. I loved thinking about consumer products and building them. I also was very interested in strategy. And so my mentor, the director of product that I was working under at the time, floated an idea, which was, why don't you go work at a venture fund for a couple of years? And ultimately, it can help make you a better product person if you get exposure to all of these different products. And I thought, that's interesting. I've never really thought about venture before, but maybe that's something to consider. And so this just highlights how out of the like inner circle I was at the time, but The way that I approached getting a job in venture was to literally apply to jobs on the websites of venture firms. So I just thought, you know, okay, if I'm going to think about working in venture, I should just go on their websites and apply to jobs because that is how people get jobs. Little did I know that that is not how people normally get a job at a venture (laughs) firm. 
But anyways, so I applied online for a job at a16z.com and to their credit, they actually read job applications and they actually reached out to me. And that then kicked off a seven month long process during which I talked to someone on the team every week or every two weeks, shared my thoughts on consumer products, what apps I was using, things that I thought these products were doing well, not well, philosophy about the world and the future, what future platforms could be. It was just a really broad ranging, very vast conversation that then ensued. And then, yeah, seven months later, I was invited to join the consumer investment team. And that obviously leaves out a lot of details like sure. in that interim period. But yeah, that's that's how I got the role. And I would flag a couple of things. One is that, as you mentioned, this was a very specific moment in venture and a very specific moment in A16Z history. A lot of marketplaces and social networks had been already created at that point in time. And so we were very cued into what could be the next possible computing platform because the best application investments tend to happen whenever there is a new platform, like the mobile platform or the internet platform. So we were very interested in what came after mobile. So we spent a lot of my time during those following four years of my time on the team looking at potential new platforms like we spent a lot of time thinking about voice as a platform, spending time with Facebook Home or Amazon Alexa. Uh, we thought about VR and AR and drones. And ultimately, like I, I now believe that crypto is that next platform, but it was definitely a very interesting time that I spent there. Yeah, you know, it, it's so funny because that period of time, it feels like it was both like a golden age of consumer startups and also just like no one knew what they were doing, right? This is like the time when you see HQ launch, uh, like OnlyFans launches around this time. Like House all party, of, yeah. Right, all, all of these apps that were sort of like, th there was this thesis that said like the big boys had won the generic pie, right? And so what we're looking at now is like things that have an ability, like House Party, right, was, a, was such a great example of this because it was never going to be a one-to-many application. It was it was designed to literally service groups of friends, right, and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, you look at something like HQ and it sort of had the opposite thesis, was just can we get as much attention as humanly possible through an application? And, you know, that uh, that period of time, I sort of think about it as like, when a lot of the VC funds started thinking smaller mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking on this big bets. Did that sort of yeah. match up with your experience? That That is precisely right. I think a lot of people don't realize this, but that was a period of time in which I think a lot of consumer venture investors were experiencing almost like a quasi existential crisis. It's like, what, what is there left to invest in? What are the major outcomes that are still remaining? Because as you said, by that time, we had already gotten the major social networks that had grown to billions, literally billions of users around the world. We had gotten the large horizontal marketplaces like eBay and Amazon that could sell users anything. And so the question was like, what remains, what is still venture scale in terms of potential outcomes. And a lot of time was spent on more niche opportunities, honestly, like more verticalized marketplaces that were targeting very specific types of products or brands or services. This led to my publishing this post, I think in 2018 or 2019, called the next era of marketplace startups and positing that tech-enabled services could be 
representative of this next wave of marketplace companies that got started. Um, it also led to a lot of my research work around audio and podcasting as potentially another form factor that we could design around that startups could potentially still create big outcomes around because voice was not really a format that any of the big social networking companies supported. And obviously that has changed now. But you're right. It was this kind of period of time in which we were almost like kind of wandering around looking for what opportunities still remained and going niche, looking for those opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, I think there there may be some people listening saying, why are we talking about 2016 consumer software investments on a Web3 podcast? But I think this all tracks really nicely into the transformation that's happened, or at least is is sort of starting to happen in the space where a lot of stuff that had a huge amount of difficulty hitting escape velocity in the venture scale world, right? I think we're, a lot of us, myself included, are still kind of amazed Substack is around. Not that Substack is not a great business, but that the venture scale potential of something like Substack feels like title, right? Like there's room in the market for title up to a certain point where they end up having to get bought by Square because at the end of the day, like a very premium music streaming service, which I subscribe to, is not something that's like quite as broad-based and dominant. But it seems like a lot of the stuff that had a lot of challenges with the equity venture model has actually had a huge amount of success in a new form now in Web3. Do you think that's kind of a, there's, there's a direct line there to draw? I think that's a really interesting provocation and one that I have actually discussed internally with the investment team at Variant as well. Like we could imagine that all of the businesses that were extremely challenging from a venture perspective in Web 2 actually become more interesting and compelling in Web 3. And why is that? Well, a few reasons. One of the reasons why certain categories were really challenging to fund in Web 2 was that customer acquisition was extremely capital intensive. There were lots of networks that required huge density of users to have any utility as a network. And so they they just really never got off the ground in Web 2, or they could never scale because they just couldn't afford the customer acquisition costs. Well, Web 3 offers an entirely new playbook for scaling those kinds of networks through tokens, and so potentially those businesses become more compelling. Some examples of those could include dating applications or hyperlocal social networks. You know, both of these categories don't get really interesting to users until they reach scale, and in Web 2, they had been extremely, extremely expensive to scale, and so potentially users ownership tips the equation to where you can actually scale those networks in a much more capital efficient manner. That's one example. Another example was that in Web2, a category that we always found quite difficult to invest in was like media companies or brands where we felt like the ownership was potentially capped because you were building a brand or a media company that targeted a very specific segment of users who had interest in that thing. But beyond that, it was difficult to find product market fit or to make the customer acquisition cost versus the lifetime value work. And Web3 potentially changes that as well because through user ownership, these media companies, these brands can actually grow to be much larger because of the user buy-in and user evangelism around them than they had in the Web2 world. So yeah, we have thought a lot about, you know, what are what are companies that didn't work before? And was it an existential question about just inherent product market fit? Or is there something different in crypto or a new playbook that is now offered to them that could actually make it work in the crypto world? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of love this line of exploration because one of the things, I mean, you know, back to something like a like a Substack or something along those lines is they're very solid businesses, but they tend to not have an advertising model that works, right? Like in, in order to make a advertising supported user generated platform be a multi-billion dollar company, you usually need to be able to throw a huge number of users at it. And as, as we've seen, even Twitter has had trouble sort of getting to a stage where advertising feels like it's sufficient. And one of the things that I have seen more exploration in in Web3, I mean, exactly to your example of like hyper-local social networks, like Nextdoor is the place you go to figure out which one of your neighbors are racist. It's not like actually a useful product for most people. Uh, or like, you know, oh, there's a, there's a raccoon loose. I wonder if I can learn anything about that. But at the same time, you start to move things into Web3, and because the model there is ownership, and it's 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 longer-term appreciation of some sort of intangible quality of the value of that community, not advertising, the incentive structure seems to be built much more like the old, like almost Web1 or Web0 days of like messenger forms and like, you know, BBS boards than something that represents like a platform company in that regard. Are you talking about the acquisition model or the projects themselves? So uh, not even the acquisition model, but the the long-term monetization of a user once the user has actually been acquired. Right. Well, I would also say that I think we're still at such a nascent stage in terms of monetization in Web3, where a lot of companies have punted on figuring out what their business model is or any sort of path to value capture that we probably just haven't seen a lot of the monetization models emerge yet. But yeah, I think your insight is right. And I would say the same thing for user acquisition too, that right now user acquisition in Web3 is very community-based. It's doing things that don't scale. But I think that reflects more of like a limitation that we have, which is that it's really difficult to tie together Web2 actions and what's happening on chain in order to acquire users efficiently than some inherent shift in like what is scalable from a user acquisition perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. So your initial fund once you left A16Z was was much more focused on sort of creator economy and that sort of expansion. And and now with Variant, a lot of that has also included obviously a much stronger focus on Web3 and crypto in general. Walk me through a little bit of like how your thinking changed and evolved or expanded from just this world of looking at like, what is the sort of creator passion economy to Web3 being something that felt to you like it was where you saw opportunity next? Definitely. Well, first to clarify, when I came out of A16Z in May of 2020, that was when I left, was really the start of COVID. Um, Great time to start your own fund. Highly recommend it. Um, My focus was on this thesis that I had been pursuing internally, which I called the passion economy. But it really dealt with what does the future of work look like and how do new startups broaden the set of possible jobs that people can have because of the internet. And so I honed in on this thesis that I called the passion economy, which related to how I believe that in the future, people can monetize their passions at scale because of new specialized marketplaces and platforms that could connect anyone offering any kind of like specialized expertise or knowledge to someone anywhere else in the world who valued that thing and would be willing to pay for it. 
And we were seeing this arise in a bunch of different verticals where people were taking their very like specialized expertise or knowledge and turning that into an income through new marketplaces and new platforms. Substack being an example of this, as well as countless other marketplaces and platforms. And so that was really my focus was on what does the future of internet enabled work look like and how can it be more people-centric and empowering of workers versus, you know, a lot of the gig economy companies that had come before. And so during the spring, summer of 2020, during COVID, I raised my first fund. It was a tremendously challenging time to raise a fund, actually. Um, Surprise, surprise, because everyone thought that the world was melting down. And so I put together, in the end, um, quite a small fund as a solo GP of about $12 million, which I then deployed into all sorts of companies that were supporting that vision of the passion economy, of new types of work that were internet-enabled. And around this period of time is really when consumer and crypto started colliding. And I realized this because as I was in market doing investments and talking to founders, a lot of crypto founders would come to me and say, I read your post on the passion economy and everything that we're building is aligned with that vision of the passion economy. We're just using crypto to do it. We're just distributing ownership to users, not just income. Yeah, I kind of want to hang on that for a second because I think if someone cold pitched you that, that like, hey, there's this thing that there's a bit of a trend in that we've seen in Web2, we're going to do it on a platform that's harder to use, more expensive, slower, and no one trusts. That would not be an instant like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's let's go look more in that. Like we had a a Web3 musician on the show, Black Dave, a, a few episodes ago. And one of the things that he was talking about is the loyal fans come from part of the technology difficulty. But that's like a very complicated like idea to get and also is usually something where it's hard to make like a venture scale thing out of that. What like made you take that leap of faith or convinced you that there actually was a Web3 version here that was not just intellectually interesting, but was, you know, economically interesting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think looking back in retrospect, it definitely was not obvious to a lot of people. I would say like rewind the tape to 2020, where in early COVID time, people are really excited about the creator economy. People are really excited about the passion economy. But crypto is kind of this like still fringe thing and people don't really see the tie in. And so I think what was it about those founder meetings and about crypto that compelled me? I would say that I had this prepared mind based on years of lived experience, years of investing experience that primed my brain to sort of connect the dots between what was happening in crypto versus what was happening in Web2 and see the the start of something really interesting there. There's probably hundreds and thousands of like little experiences over the years that made me more leaned in to crypto, but I'll just share a few of those data points. So for instance, one of the factors was that from years of investing in Web2 platforms, I had always felt that there was like this underlying tension between the people doing the work on these platforms and contributing the content or contributing utility to those networks versus who was actually getting value from them. And that was very apparent to me because I I worked at, you know, a large venture firm that benefited from this dynamic. And I thought there was inherently some unfairness there where there was someone 
in the equation who wasn't being compensated fairly in terms of getting full compensation for the value that they were contributing. And those were the people who were actually participating on those platforms as workers, as creators, as users. So this was in the back of my mind. Yeah, I hear you on that. That That's a critique that like I've heard a lot about the existing Web2 system, right? There's this whole like every YouTube creator has this like rite of passage where they make a video about how much they hate YouTube. And then they realize that that's where they can make their money and they keep doing it. I guess like the jump that very few to no one else was making at the time, if you talk to a bunch of investors at the time, was that there was an opportunity there to disrupt that Web2 extractive creator model. And that there wasn't just like a social opportunity, but there was there was actually venture scale investment to be made. And I think that's kind of one of the pieces that I'm curious about sort of how you and and the Varian co-founders kind of came to that conclusion that like, we're going to go after something that is harder, much lower margin on the take rate side, and we can actually build a fund structure around this and it can be really great returns. Yeah, definitely. So there's a whole host of other things that occurred during this like span of time that sort of convinced me of the opportunity around crypto, some of which I'll just highlight quickly. After I realized that there was this underlying tension in the Web2 platforms, my initial impulse was like, okay, let's just change who gets to invest in these Web2 platforms. Let's include creators and users in the cap tables so that they can become owners of them. That was my initial impulse was like, how do we get creators on the cap tables of these startups so that they can participate in the value creation? And so I constructed this entire angel investing curriculum and course where I taught a cohort of YouTubers and TikTok creators and all of these other creators how to invest in companies. And then I curated companies to come in and pitch them. And honestly, the experience was amazing. It was so fun, but honestly, it was also extremely disillusioning to me because it made me so clearly see the limitations of equity in in the potential to distribute ownership much more broadly because these these creators were by and large not accredited investors even though they had millions of followers and founders didn't want to deal with like dozens of small checks from these little random angel investors. And so after that, I realized like we need a better way, like a technology driven way to distribute ownership much more broadly. And then I would also say like another huge influence throughout this period of time was the fact that I had been talking to my now partner for Variant, Jesse Walden, throughout this entire period of deploying that first fund. And, you know, we would catch up once a week, talk about what we were seeing, talk about themes that we were writing on. Um, We had been colleagues at A16Z, Jesse on the crypto team, me on the consumer team. And so we, we had just stayed in close touch. And he was going off and embarking on a very similar path that I was, which was setting up his own fund, um, Variant One, as a solo GP. And so during that first year, we were basically in lockstep deploying our first funds, talking to each other weekly, mind melding over really the intersection of the passion economy and the ownership economy, which he was focused on. And that was hugely influential to the both of us. So I think that collaboration really exposed to us the opportunity to combine those two ideas to use ownership as a mechanism for yeah creating a more fair internet where users can actually become owners yeah it's 
It's funny because, you know, around the same time, a little bit earlier, 2018 into 2019, um, I was working for Republic and Republic Crypto, which was trying to solve a similar problem of how do we get non-accredited investors onto the cap table of some of these some of these startups. So I think the exact same problems you ran into were the exact same problems that we ran into, which is that, you know, founders don't want lots of small checks on their cap table. And also the uneducated investor asks a lot more questions than the educated investor. Yeah, I think the idea, I had no idea you worked at Republic, by the way, (laughs) that's amazing. I think the idea behind that platform is awesome and I very much agree with the spirit of it. I think all of the problems that we've highlighted plague that platform just as much as, you know, what I was trying to do with my Creator Angel course, which is that it is just the existing legal frameworks that we have around ownership and equity investment do not scale to internet scales of users. And so this is where I think the Web3 component of your thesis is really interesting because the viability of the creator model in Web3, I think is still very much in its early stage. You see some people who have had breakout success, whether it's through selling NFTs or, you know, something along those lines. And then you see a lot of people who are sort of circling around something there. They've maybe they've done some experimentation on on the creator side, but they haven't really dove in completely yet. What do you sort of see as that viable model for both venture to creator as as an investment category in Web3 and like from a web from a creator perspective, like what is attractive enough about Web3 to actually pull users out of this now quite well established Web2 monetization influencer creator ecosystem, even if the returns there for creators aren't always as much as they hope they are? Great questions. I'll tackle the second one first. So in terms of what draws in creators to crypto versus sticking with like the existing Web2 suite of possibilities in terms of monetization, something that I often point to is the fact that with every new successful like creative platform or social network, what we really see is a new generation of creators that rise up and seize the opportunity there and are successful on those new platforms. So when TikTok arose, it wasn't that existing YouTubers migrated over to TikTok and started creating that new format of content. It really came from a new cohort of creators. And I think the parallel holds in Web3, which is that what we're going to see in Web3 is an entirely new cohort of Web3 native creators who are successful using the tools that crypto offers and weren't successful in Web2. And we're already seeing this playing out initially, where in categories like music NFTs or NFTs more broadly, the types of creators that are finding success or really adopting crypto are the ones that didn't have massive pre-existing audience bases, weren't already monetizing successfully in Web2. They're the ones that are adopting crypto natively as this entirely new tool set to bootstrap audiences and to bootstrap capital. So my prediction is that like we're going to get a cohort of Web3 native creators that we didn't know about in Web2 and were not already successful in Web2. And the reason why that is, is because the playbook for success looks really different. Instead of creating content, putting it out there, waiting for fans to like it, building up an audience base of millions and then monetizing, the Web3 playbook looks instead like building a community up front, maybe bootstrapping capital through a token, whether that's a fungible token or an NFT collection, 
using that base of community plus capital to then create content while also incorporating your community's feedback and then subsequently launching that content in collaboration with your audience and like elevating them as stakeholders too. So it flips that kind of like web two playbook on its head. And I think it requires a very different skill set for creator success. It looks much more like a community leader or someone who is really good at memes or getting an idea to spread or cultivating community than someone who is like an artistic genius creating something alone in isolation and then pushing it out there into the world. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And too many times people conflate these two things that the beauty of YouTube is all you have to be is an incredible YouTube personality. You know, and TikTok does the same thing. Like there there are folks where they make their entire living like doing deep dives on like, you know, old pieces of technology from like the Apollo space program. And they don't have to go find their audience. YouTube finds their audience for them. And the Web3 trade-off is a little bit different there, as you were articulating. Yeah, exactly. It's a totally different skill set that gets advantaged in the Web3 creator economy than in the Web2 creator economy. The profile of a successful creator actually looks different, is what I would emphasize. And there's a lot of parallels you can draw from that into like, you know, startup founders in crypto versus startup founders in web two as well. I think a lot of those parallels still hold. And then sort of backing up to your other question of what is investable and how how does this affect how we invest in crypto? What does this new creator economy offer in terms of potential opportunities? Well, we are very active basically throughout the entire like new emerging crypto creator economy as investors. We're investors in new marketplaces, in new creator tool sets, platforms like Mirrored Foundation and Zora. We're also sometimes investing in creators themselves where we actually invest in NFTs because we believe in the future success of that particular creator. And I think that's really interesting because in Web2, it had been difficult, if not impossible, to see like a venture scale outcome for one particular creator because there was no, yeah, there was no community or user ownership that could propel it to like that next level of success. But anyways, we think creators are now also investable. Yeah, this is fascinating because I think if you look at the early investments in the Web3, like the Web2 creator economy, if we're honest, it's mostly SaaS tooling that services creators in some form or another. Yeah, or right? the, it's, the social networks. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's pieces of software that are either beneath or on top of the creator economy. And the creator economy kind of all exists in the middle. But like if you squint enough, Visa is a creator economy player because they facilitate payments throughout the ecosystem, right? When you look into the Web3 space, like, you know, I've been trying to figure this out, kind of what I think about this myself, not that there has to be one way or the other way, but there's a thesis you could articulate where Web3 creators could look actually much more like a 1940s Hollywood model, where they're actually part of agencies, and that the role of something like a variant is to actually be investing broadly in creators, but doing something similar to what the record labels and the movie studios did sort of before we had this media revolution. Because a lot of the platform companies, I mean, you guys obviously, you've invested in Magic Eden, you've invested in Phantom as well. Like there, there are all of these other platform companies that 
have a lot of opportunity in Web3, but also have struggled from a margins perspective as that economics have shifted in the space. Do you sort of see one of those paths as more likely or a combination of both? It's a great question. I think a lot of this is still obviously playing out and things are happening extremely dynamically, like week over week, if not day by day. We're basically excited about the entire stack. So we're investing in everything across the entire stack, both like within the consumer stack of everything from like protocols to infrastructure to tools to applications to NFTs themselves and creators themselves, but then more broadly across the entire Web3 stack too, where we're investing in everything from low-level infrastructure and, and and like new L1s and L2s to developer tools to DeFi to consumer. So we believe that there's potential for like amazing outcomes for success across every layer of the stack. I think in particular, your question about where does value accrue in the consumer landscape, in the creator landscape in Web3 is an extremely like timely one because we've been watching the unfolding NFT marketplace landscape <laughs> very closely. We actually just published a blog post today about the Blur token airdrop and what lessons that can hold for other consumer founders or other crypto founders looking to launch a token. And it does seem to us that marketplaces are not as defensible as they were in Web2 when the assets themselves are on chain and can be moved from marketplace to marketplace. And so what is happening is that liquidity is much less sticky than it had been in Web2. Users are less sticky. The, the network effect is less strong. And so I actually posited that maybe the most defensible position is to actually own the creator relationship and be responsible for those primary mints. And so being a tool that is indispensable to the creator toolkit and helping them to distribute their mints could actually be a source of defensibility in the future as like user attention and liquidity moves around. So on the creator side, how do you go about evaluating if a creator is investable? Yeah, I would first say that the majority of our investments are in protocols or applications. And so only a slice of our portfolio is really in NFTs themselves or creators themselves. And so this is still an area that we're fleshing out and probably don't spend as much of our time in. But where we have made investments in particular NFT projects, for instance, we announced our, our Nouns investment a few months ago, it was really informed by um, the community that had formed around it, where it was no longer about a single creator. It was about a community where there was a network effect and there was positive selection of where you know, as the community grew larger, it became more attractive to more and more prospective users. There was a positive network effect to that particular set of creations, that NFT collection. It resembled not just a piece of content, but it resembled like a social network in and of itself. The NFT is a proxy for investing in a social network that has positive selection. So that's really one framework for evaluating creator projects. We sort of talked around this idea of redefining ownership in Web3. Ownership's complicated. One of the things I wanted to kind of talk about is like when an equity company gets acquired or goes public, funds stand to make substantial returns from that investment, but no one ever accuses them of dumping on retail when they sell their stock when something goes public. In Web3, it's a little bit different, right? It, there, there have been many investment funds that have run into 
uh, I would say, public concern when they decide that, you know, they want to provide some liquidity for their LPs and they want to start, you know, selling down a position. Because the relationship is different than equity, it feels very different when a fund decides to sell tokens than when a fund decides to sell its shares of Etsy or something along those lines. you know, how do you think about that process? Or how do you think funds should think about that sort of, I don't want to call it a social responsibility, but it's a very different relationship to be, you know, to own 10% of a project's token supply, as opposed to owning 10% of an equity investment. It's definitely really interesting to consider the contrast and the parallels between those two outcomes that you had mentioned, where when a fund exits an equity position when a company IPOs, no one ever says they're jumping on retail, (laughs) right? And I think the reason for that distinction or the reason why it's perceived differently is because when companies IPO, they're usually at a level of maturity and stability to where people sort of acknowledge that this company is valuable and even if they buy in at that point of IPO, there's still a lot of headroom left for normal retail investors to benefit and to participate in its growth. I think that is the distinction, like the the perception of dumping on retail versus exiting from an IPO is what is the growth prospect after that point? Do you think that is the root issue? I, I don't know, because a lot of folks who sort of complain about you know, a fund, either rightly or wrongly, selling tokens at what it was perceived as a high point or, you know, just a point. I, I, it feels different to me because I think if you if you asked most people at the peak of the bull market, is ETH going to go up? Let's pick a nice token that I don't own as much of, right? Is ETH going to go up? Most people would have said, of course, ETH is going above 4,000. No question about it. But in retrospect, if, you know, a fund that you'd been involved in had decided to sell it, let's just call it 3,800, right? Something that was near the top, but was not the top. And then the market takes the downturn like it does. The social response to that is very different than if if you'd sold all of your Netflix stock in November of 2022. There's something that feels very different about that. And it might be maturity of market, but yeah. Uh, Yeah, I agree with you that the response to those things are very different. I want to hone in on the reason why. One reason that I'm positing is like the maturity of those different projects is is really different. Like IPOs happen after 10, 12 plus years when it's very well known how these companies are doing. There's multiple years of history. And there's also the widespread belief that there's still additional room for growth in these opportunities that even if you're a normal retail investor and you invest in the IPO, you're doing so because you believe that there's still ample room for appreciation after that fact. Whereas I think when a a lot of these tokens are trading, a lot of these tokens get launched very early on in the project's life cycle, which is both a risk and an opportunity for retail investors. An opportunity because they get to participate in the growth alongside early investors much earlier on than when these projects would, when their counterparts would IPO, but also a risk because there's just not as much game film and history around these projects and whether they're actually going to sustain their growth. So I think that contributes to it. I think the other factor at play here is that crypto as an industry is still in such a nascent period in its development that a lot of these tokens trade at valuations that are decoupled from the project's fundamentals. 
you can see this in the fact that all tokens are correlated. <laughs> and when there's a bull market, they all go up. When there's a bear market, they all go down. Like the, the token prices are not coupled or not driven by the actual fundamentals of these projects in terms of usage, developers, revenue, etc. And so I think that then creates the risk of wild price fluctuations and volatility that then contributes to the sense that like people are picking a point in time in which it's really advantageous to them to exit because the price is so way ahead of fundamentals. Yeah, you know, one of the things that it's a blessing and a curse of crypto is it, it strips everything down to its most bare fundamentals. I mean, I think if you've been around IPOs for long enough, you kind of get the sense that that last round of valuation before the IPO, there's usually something going on there in terms of the pricing. And in crypto, everything is just bare and directly to the front. And so it feels like because it isn't obfuscated behind four layers of banks, that there's something about that that can feel more direct and more personal to people. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think like in terms of the the so what of this effect on us and like how this impacts us, we very much view it as part of our responsibility as well as the responsibility of like founders and other investors in the space to challenge users to have as much information as they possibly can when they're buying tokens or when they're trading these assets. Because I think a lot of users are conflating ownership with this idea of like an automatic ticket to like value like to to building value and that's not the case like owning these assets owning these crypto assets is equivalent to like ownership of anything where there's no guarantee that the outcome will be a certain way like when you buy a house there's no guarantee that the price of the house is going to appreciate in a certain time frame or when you know you invest in a stock the same is true and yet i think crypto has been built up as this industry where people are making massive amounts of money and so i think there's this like overblown expectation that speculating on these assets is a ticket to quick riches without all of the other responsibilities in terms of research and self-education that comes with ownership and so we very much view it as incumbent on us and other players in the industry to like help users educate themselves, like publish as much data-driven analysis as possible, challenge users to unpack like what are they actually owning, what type of governance does it give them to understand the tokenomics of the projects that they're investing in. So I think like the the solution to all of this is for users to be as educated as possible. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that the paradox here is that there's never been, eh, probably since the year 2000, there really hasn't ever been this level of opportunity in the investment space for a brand new technology that really will change how most of the world works. At the same time, there's no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was just recently reflecting on the Blur token airdrop. And oh, by the way, Variant is not an investor. We just think it's a really interesting case study because obviously with our focus on user ownership, this is a very prominent case study of a project that is distributing ownership to its users at a really large scale. And it's you know taking a step back, putting aside what you believe about the long-term prospects for Blur as an NFT marketplace or the prospects for ever taking a take rate, et cetera. Like putting all of that aside, it is actually just this really tremendous moment in terms of 
a really successful, fast-growing project, giving users ownership so early on in its life cycle. It only launched in October of last year. It's now February, and they have airdropped, I think, 12% of their token supply to users. Like that, that just would have been impossible in the old world. And so the immensity of that moment is definitely not lost on us. Well, I gotta let you go soon, but what are areas in Web3 or the creator space that you don't think are quite investable yet, but you're watching closely? I've been very interested in podcasting for some time, and I think that there's an opportunity around podcast NFTs. And this is because podcasting for many creators represents a labor of love that they don't monetize or monetize to a very small extent. And if you compare monetization relative to the fandom that exists around a lot of the top podcasts, it's really out of whack where these fans are like cult followers of some of these podcasts. And yet the ways for these podcasts to capture value and it you know, to monetize their super fans, it's just quite broken today. So I think the potential for podcasts to leverage crypto as a monetization mechanism or to build community is really fascinating. I recently did a drop of um, one of my old Bankless episodes as an NFT with Bankless, where we uh, did an addition of 100 NFTs for my podcast episode, which did quite well. And that was like an aha moment to me. Um, And then, yeah, beyond that, I think it's really interesting to think about the creator categories that exist in the world that, you know, more broadly, like suffer from low monetization or poor monetization. And those are probably where the opportunities lie in crypto. Well, Lee, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.